A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, this is Victoria Meyer. Thank you for joining this week of the Chemical Show podcast, which we are actually recording live. So it's a, I guess we could call it the Chemical Show Live. And it's Earth Day, and we are featuring a topic and a panel on green and sustainable innovation. So today I have with me Neil Burns, who is CEO of P2 Science, James Gibson, who is CEO of Void Technologies, and John Timbers, who is uh, Chief Sustainability Officer at Epsilite. And I'm going to ask that people keep their cameras off other than our speakers. Patty, we see you. So now you get a shout out. <laughs> anyway, so we're structuring this as really a dialogue and a panel discussion, and we'll have an opportunity for people to ask questions, our live participants, as we go along towards the end. But why don't we just get started? And I'm going to ask each of our guests to provide just a quick overview of your company. John, I'm going to start with you. Oh, okay. Epsilite is the second largest producer of EPS in North America. We've grown quickly through acquisitions over the last year. So have three manufacturing locations and about 300 employees. And we've had the vision of building the company from the beginning around sustainability beliefs. And it's been a fun venture. Awesome. And you provide a bit of the old school in a lot of ways because your company's products, EPFs, have been around for a very long time. Very long time. Awesome. All right, Neil, how about for you? Can you give us a quick overview of your company? Sure. P2 Science is a green chemistry company. We're selling ingredients to the cosmetics industry and the fragrance industry. We're a fairly new company. We got spun out of Yale University about 10 years ago. The two co-founders of the company are Professor Paul Anastas, who's quite well known in the field of green chemistry, and one of his students, Patrick Foley. So we're a little bit smaller than the previous company. We've got 25 employees, one manufacturing location, and one R&D and headquarters location. Both of those are in Connecticut. Which is not a typical spot for chemicals, but I think that creates some unique value as well. There's a few of us there, but not many. That's right. Absolutely. And James, how about for you? Yeah. So Void's a material science company. We're based in Nina, Wisconsin in the US, where we have our polymer labs, R&D facility and compound manufacturing. We have a technology which was spun out of Kimberly-Clark. It's a plastic reduction technology. It comes in additive form. And what it enables us to do is create nano and micro scale voids or cavities or air pockets, however you want to think about it in plastics to create lighter, stronger, and more sustainable products. And we're very focused at the moment on polyethylene films and packaging. So for consumer-based packaging, agricultural, industrial, those sorts of applications. Awesome. So what is the significance? I'm going to ask each of you guys this. What's the significance of sustainability to you and your business? And James, maybe let's start with you since it seems like you guys are founded on a principle of sustainability. Yeah, that's right at the heart of our business. I suppose there's two parts to your question is what does it mean to me, I suppose, and then how do we approach it from our business? So from my perspective, I think especially in Western societies, we're really kind of driven by consumerism at the moment. So fast fashion, the ability to order products just almost instantly and have them delivered to us. And I feel that this is just meaning that we're using more and more resources and we have to really start thinking about ways of using less. That's the most impactful sustainability strategy that you can have. The challenge with that is it's very difficult to change behaviors. That takes a long time and it's a really big challenge. But I think what you can do while people's behaviors start to adapt is you can start to look at innovation and technologies that make materials and products work harder. So they become more sustainable, use less materials. And that really drives towards greater sustainability. 
And then from Boyd's perspective, that our mission is to accelerate the transition to more sustainable plastics. That's right at integral to our business. And we do this by developing products that use less plastic and are easier to recycle. So that's how we're approaching it. That's interesting. And I suppose that was Kimberly Clark's mission when it was looking into identifying technologies, since obviously they're a big user of plastic films and other plastics. Correct. I think that was a big part of how the invention came about is Kimberly Clark company think a lot about sustainability. And they were trying to find ways to, as I would say, use today's products, but with much less plastic. Interesting. Awesome. How about for you, Neil? You and P2 Science. Yeah, so we offer two things to our customers. One of them is sustainability. The other is performance. And we actually lead with performance. For the folks we're talking to, it's mainly consumer products companies, mainly folks like Unilever and P&G and Henkel at the top end, all the way down to literally two garage formulators. And coming to them, coming to the market with sustainability, with green products is good. And they want to hear about them, no doubt about it. If we can bring that along with superior performance, then that's great. So we want to be, without sounding flip, we want to be great to be able to differentiate ourselves because there's a lot of activity around green ingredients and sustainable ingredients. Many of these consumer products companies have set fairly ambitious goals for the near term. 2030, it's not that far off. And you got Unilever, L'Oreal. Let me see if I get the numbers right. Well, Unilever, P&G, and L'Oreal have committed to reduce greenhouse gases by 2030 by 50%, 40%, and 50% respectively. So that's a big deal. And as a result of that self-imposed goal, which they've imposed on themselves fairly publicly, there's a lot of activity looking for sustainable solutions. And that goes all the way from basic ingredients to packaging, to processes and logistics and all that stuff. So we're right in that mix, but we definitely want to be able to bring performance as well. And so both of those things were at the beginning of the company where we focused on brand new chemistry And in most cases, brand new process technology to make that chemistry. And so with the benefits of sustainability with this new chemistry, we sought to build in right at the very beginning, superior performance, depending on the application. It could be things like skin moisturization, trans-epidermal water loss, or for hair care applications, things like anti-frizz and heat protection and all this stuff. And so this is all very much part of the package that we bring to the market. So it's really those two. And in many cases, as I said, we'll lead with performance and then enable people to dig into the sustainability and the metrics we have for that, for our ingredients. Yeah. I think that's interesting because I do think consumers expect performance and companies expect performance first. And so sustainability, while it may be super critical to a consumer, if a product doesn't perform, they don't want it. They don't want the most green product, the most sustainable product, if it doesn't actually deliver the performance and the value that they're expecting. That's right. The segment that we're in, and I think, Victoria, you probably know this segment as well, the wrap on green and sustainable products has been, yeah, but you have to sacrifice performance or cost or both. That has been the reputation that's been acquired. So To avoid having to dance around that, as I say, we just lead with performance. This is all the things that these ingredients do. Here are the performance metrics. Try them for yourselves. And by the way, naturally derived, low carbon footprint, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. How about for you, John, you and Epsilite? We actually use the word identity a lot when we think about sustainability. And I guess because we formed our company in late 2020, and we've kind of went through this process of what are our goals? What are our mission? What's our value? For us, having sustainability at the center has kind of been defining a non-traditional stakeholder in that process. So I think traditionally companies would say, okay, our customers are important stakeholder. Maybe our employees are important stakeholder. And we've tried to step back and say, okay, the whole world is a stakeholder for Epsilite. Who are we in the world? Where do we fit in the world? What are our values and our beliefs? And that's kind of been what sustainability means at Epsilite. So 
that's been very interesting is it's taken us down the path of not just thinking about making more sustainable products, but we believe energy conservation is critical to carbon neutral future. We make products that go into insulation. That's kind of one of the core of our beliefs, but it's also led us into other areas of sustainability, like community involvement and diversity and inclusion. And we put in our application, I think yesterday, become a signatory to the UN Global Compact. So it's really, I'd say, opened us up as we say, it's not just about our products, but it's who are we as a company? And where do we fit in the world? What purpose do we serve in the world? Yeah, I think it's a good point because I think a lot of individuals and maybe from a chemical industry perspective, the customers and the customers' customers are really looking at those 17 UN sustainable development goals as they define sustainability more broadly. I think often we kind of keep it within a smaller box and think about it from an environmental perspective, but obviously there is things about helping people and communities and reducing poverty and other things that all go into that broader bucket of sustainability. Yeah, as we went down the 10 beliefs of the UN Global Compact to kind of say, is this something we should become a signatory to as a company? For us, it was just like, yeah, this is who we are. This represents our values. Yes, we're in on that. You know, it's pretty easy. Interesting. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit about innovation because I think innovation plays obviously a big role in terms of where the chemical industry is going, where the world is going to become more sustainable to meet some of these targets, these really ambitious targets about greenhouse gas reductions, et cetera. What role does innovation play in your company? Neil, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I was thinking about this before the podcast. Yeah, it's a central role. There's no doubt about it. It's funny. I was putting together a presentation for a fairly major customer. And one of our guys said, you know, we should mention some of the patents, some of the patent numbers we have around the things we're talking about in this presentation, the products, process, what have you. So, and it ended up being festooned with numbers. It looked a little ridiculous. So took some of those out. But the point being, I guess, is yeah, we do invent a lot of stuff and we patent it all. And so the company was having been spun out of Yale University, out of the Center for Green Chemistry and Green Engineering by a professor and a PhD student. One would expect innovation to be uh, fairly central. And that hasn't really changed from day one. We started the company in November, late 2011, and we had one patent application working its way through the system at that time. And we've been filing and innovating ever since. In fact, last year, was our most prolific year for patent filings, and the pace doesn't seem to be slowing. So yeah, that's great. And again, I guess it's part of the value add. It's part of what we bring to the market is we got new stuff. It's new materials, new processes, a new approach. And the reason we're sort of doubling down on innovation, I'll throw out another stat. So I think I said we got 25 employees. So 12 of them, almost half, are in R&D. And that ratio probably won't change. I think it's going to continue to be half as even as we continue to scale up manufacturing and add people in the manufacturing area, we're going to be adding people in R&D as well. So that's still super important for us. And the the sort of the base of the inventorship is spreading as well. In the beginning, we had, well, the, the company was two people. There was Patrick, my partner, who is the inventor and still the most prolific inventor at P2. And myself, and then, but broadened the base of lead inventors as other folks have joined the technical function here. They start to take the initiative and lead inventions that are patented. So, yeah, it's what we are, what we're known for. But we also are very sort of conscientious about the fact that the default approach is whatever technology we're developing or inventing, the default is to make and manufacture ourselves. It's not a licensing business model, although we have ended up licensing one piece of technology. But our idea is to take it all to market ourselves. I would believe that's the best way to add value and extract value from the technology. Yeah, interesting. So it sounds like you started with an external innovation that brought in to form the company, and then the majority of it's been internally, internal innovation, I guess, if you will. James, how does that play out for Void? Because Void similarly started as a spinoff based on some novel technology. Yeah. So I mean, technology is right at the core. Technology and R&D actually are right at the core. So we've got around 35 patent families and around 360 individual territory patents. So we've got a really large patent estate. That is a lot. Yeah, no, it is a lot. 
But when I think around innovation, I looked at your question before and I thought the first thing is just around the team. So I think everyone in our business, there's about 20 of us now, they all have a real burning desire to create positive change in the world where they think they're making a real difference. And they all seem very passionate around sustainability. So it's really integral to who we are. And for us, that means developing plastics that use less material and are easier to recycle. So I think, number one, we've got a team with a real hunger for innovation. But then the second thing is you have to create a culture where innovation can thrive. So within a business, you need an environment where people have the ability to be brave, to explore new ideas and fail as well without kind of horrific repercussions. And I think if you get the right people in your business and you create the right environment and culture for them, then innovation will naturally thrive. So that's sort of, I think, how we've approached innovation within our business. And we see it's kind of been really successful. Yeah. And I would suppose, especially as a new company, relatively new company, it's easier to embed that in the DNA upfront versus in companies that have been in existence for a long period of time. Yeah, I think that's really true because it's difficult to change behaviors and cultures. Even for Void, we've had to evolve over time. So in the very early days, we were more willing to try lots and lots of things in a bid to find out kind of where our sweet spot was, let's say. And now we are starting to become much more disciplined in our approach. That doesn't mean that we're preventing people from sharing new ideas and trying things. But as you start to get your products much closer to market, you start to become very, very focused on executing really effectively against clear technology plans. But it doesn't mean that you can't still approach those challenges with innovation in mind or a creativity in solving challenges in a new way. And I often think for a startup, it sort of gives you a bit of permission to challenge the industry and how they've done things in the past. You have to be respectful and look at the wisdom that's come before. But with fresh eyes, you may sometimes spot new ways of doing things. And I think that gives you a real opportunity to kind of be disruptive. Yeah, makes sense. John, how does that fit for you? Because I think Epsilite and I think of your products and it's EPS is a pretty old school product. It's been around for a very long time. And yet Epsilite is taking a, a different approach or maybe a broader approach to it. Is that true? Yeah, I actually think I would align a lot with what James was saying about innovation is I actually will give a plug for a book called Presence here. And it's, I don't know the author, but the picture on the front is like a drop of water. But it talks about creating a culture for innovation. And the, the most important thing within an innovation organization is to create that culture where people can talk. And this kind of ties back to sustainability. If you think about diversity and inclusion, often we think about diversity and inclusion as hiring people from other backgrounds. Maybe that's the diversity. But the inclusion part comes where you include those people of the different backgrounds. You create a safe space for people to talk, to innovate, to throw out crazy ideas I think that is one of the most important things for innovation is create that culture where people feel completely comfortable adding to the meeting, throwing their ideas out, giving different ideas, and you don't make them feel like an other for saying, hey, that's something that we don't talk about here, right? You include people and let them talk. And that's really, and creating that culture for innovation is important. So I could see what James was saying. The other thing I would say about innovation at Epsilite is And this also ties to sustainability. I think often in sustainability, and maybe particularly for those of us that are the more mature side of the commodities business, there's a temptation for sustainability to be a marketing program. Oh, well, people just don't understand how sustainable our products are. Let me do a marketing program to explain that to them. And I think sustainability needs to be that mixture of both innovation and marketing. You got to actually come up with new and different ways of doing things then explain that to your stakeholders, right? And so we like to, I I mean, this is a mathematical exercise, but I like to say, let's keep our sustainability about 80% innovation and 20% marketing, right? Let's focus on really finding new ways of doing things. And then of course we do got to communicate that and market that to our customers and to our stakeholders when we figure it out. But there's always a risk. I see a lot of sustainability people going down that path of, heavy on the marketing, light on the innovation. And we try to sit as heavy on the innovation, light on the marketing and our sustainability efforts. Awesome. So I think you touched on the fact, and I guess I've touched on it. I mean, some of these, I think all three of your companies are bringing in new and novel approaches to chemicals and chemistry and applications that they've been around for a long time, right? Surfactants, plastics, EPS, other things. What challenges have you faced in your new technology development 
as you approach this? And I think maybe just in both the development, but also just in the acceptance of these new products that you're bringing to market. James, you look like you're ready to answer. Sure, I can answer. I think you've covered it off. I mean, in the plastics and packaging sector, it's a mature industry. It's been around for a long time. I mean, you'll know yourself, Victoria. But I think with that comes a degree, quite a big degree, in my opinion, of a conservative approach. So people want to stick with what's already working in their mind. And what this means is innovation cycles are typically, in my opinion, slow. And new developments often incremental opposed to big leaps. That just means things can move really quite slowly. The other challenge around that we find from our perspective is often you need to prove your technology out at scale. So what you can do in the lab or in a pilot scale is great until you can prove it out at large commercial scale and at commercial throughputs, then you haven't really de-risked your technology enough. And gaining regular access to those commercial scale assets can be really, really challenging. And it can, it can just really take time to kind of get access to those things. So one of the things that we've really started doing is we first step is we've got a lot of that capability in-house. So we set up our own extrusion labs, our own testing capabilities, all in-house. So now we can really accelerate pilot scale now, so bigger than lab, our own developments, but also our customer developments. What we've seen is that's been a real accelerator for both our own R&D, but also our customers' projects as well. So it's not only been an R&D asset, but it's been a business development asset as well kind of moving our projects along. Interesting. And Neil, I know you've been in the surfactant industry, I think the majority of your career. So you've seen multiple facets. How does this play out for P2 Science? Honestly, my answer could map directly to James's. I mean, it's time is a challenge. Scale is a challenge. And the timing of the scale, I mean, exactly the same experience. I mean, that's life in the chemical industry. Chemicals take time. Users of chemicals are conservative, and so change takes time. All those things, and I'm not going to repeat James's answer. I wish I'd said it myself, but what he said is all true. And these are the things we've wrestled with as well. I think there came a point to address the scale question where we said, look, we're just going to have to build a plant regardless. Let's just build a plant. We've tried messing around with contract manufacturers. We've tried gradual piloting and so forth. But at the end of the day, nothing speaks louder than having people come around and look at, here's our plant. There's the steel in the ground. So we are operating at a certain scale and we have that credibility and we're in it for the long haul. I I think one thing that did help us, it was in 2017, in February of 2017, we raised an equity round. And at that round, we brought in BASF as an investor. So having this big chemical company as an investor, very visibly says to the rest of the market, okay, they're backed by an investor that gets chemicals, right? That's pretty clear. That spoke volumes really much more than the money they actually put into the company. It made a statement to our customers that we were associated with people that were like-minded with us and with them. So that was a big deal. Yeah. It's so interesting. So one of the things I've been talking to people about, and that's really come up in conversations as it relates to sustainability and green is this aspect of collaboration. One that you need that as an industry, we have to collaborate to have solutions and standards, but it sounds also just the whole collaboration with value chain partners, right? So somebody that's willing to commit and collaborate and invest in your case to help move the needle, to help bring forward these new technologies. Do you see that as being critical? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's helpful to be able to leverage off of other folks' strengths. So yeah, as I said, having BSF was great. Also, we brought in a little later on after that, Chanel as an investor. And so that's kind of spoke volumes to the end of the supply chain to the sorts of companies that are customers today. And so the collaboration there has been excellent. And then the other one I would highlight, because it's in the public domain, is our collaboration with ADM, Archer Daniels Midland, which is obviously a huge part of the supply chain of vegetable feedstocks. And so having a pretty visible and far-reaching collaboration with them has been helpful to us. And also, again, signals to the market the seriousness with which we're approaching what we do. So these types of collaborations have been great. And just customer collaborations getting with customers early and working cooperatively to develop products is obviously valuable. So we do a lot of that. Awesome. 
How about for Epsilite, John? The area of collaboration and sustainability is an interesting one to me because as you were asking that question, I could think of three completely different ways that it's kind of manifested for me in working in sustainability in the chemical industry. One is what I call the Walmart method of achieving your goals, where you set a goal and then you tell your supplier, hey, you got to hit this goal, right? (laughs) And so if you're in the chemical industry, you're kind of upstream, right? So let's say hypothetically Walmart sets a goal and they tell their brand owners, hey, you got to help me meet this goal. The brand owners turn around and tell their packaging converters, hey, we got to meet this goal. The packaging converters turn around and meet, tell the resin supplier, hey, we got to meet this goal. And that's sometimes interesting. I think as a plastics manufacturer, you're, you don't have anyone turn around and tell, hey, help me meet this goal, right? You're kind of at the beginning of the chain. And I think that's one way that collaboration can manifest itself in sustainability is in the chemical industry is, you're kind of low man on the totem pole as far as your distance from the consumer. And you're sometimes struggling. You don't know how to help Walmart meet their goal that they set, right? The other way is that I worked on a technology that was a recycling technology and we had a limited volume. We had this great technology. We had a limited volume. We go to customers, we say, hey, we got this great new product, but we got a limited volume. And it was kind of Goldilocks problem of finding a customer that could collaborate with you at the volume you needed when you had a limited volume. And then the third way I've experienced it here with Epsilite recently is we've got a technology to convert all our material to biodegradable and we want to make it convert it all. So now it's the opposite of having a volume limit. It's, hey, we'd like to convert everybody. And that's also a challenge as well, right? You start finding out that you got customers using the material for all these different applications and markets and medical and FDA. And you say, hey, got this new invention. I'm going to supply everybody the new resin, you start getting a lot of customers saying, now, wait a minute, I got a process or I got a contract or I've got a customer that I've got this commitment to. So so I think in the chemical industry, we sit in this unique space for collaborating, either if it's a circular collaboration or it's a upstream pushing down or downstream pushing up, there are different dynamics of how that collaboration comes together. Yeah. And timing is a big part of it. I mean, I think I've heard this a lot recently that there's some aspects of it's a hurry up and wait right? Like, oh, we really want this biodegradable cup for fast food packaging or whatever. But uh, yeah, we want it there, but we're not necessarily ready to buy it, buy the materials or buy the technology because our timeline is different. We're not seeing the same consumer demand, et cetera. So it's a really complex timing issue to just support the development cycles at the right time and be ready at the right time with the right capacities for when somebody's ready to say go. Yeah. I've had that experience as well where so we went all in on a biodegradable technology, partially because our view is the recycling system for plastics is a long ways from being very good. I hate to say that, but a lot of people work on it, doing a lot of good work, but I mean, it's decades away. We're recycling about 10% of all plastics in the U.S. today. So when we sat down and said, what are we going to do? We said, well, we're going to go all in on the biodegradable technology, right? So we go to a customer and we said, hey, Big brand owner, we got this way you can ship your perishable food to your customers in a biodegradable cooler. And they said, well, we're really more focused on recycling. So it's not that recycling is bad, or it's just that the timing, right? The, our view is, well, that's probably decades away versus the customer's view of, well, that's really what we want to focus on right now. It's just if it's not versus you come, sometimes you come across another customer who they're right in the same space where you're at now. Yeah, it's good. All right. So I'm going to jump that into one of my questions, which is really around this whole end of life management, right? So I think one of the challenges, certainly in the durable or the physical materials that are easier to see, plastics, EPS, et cetera. Neil, I think with the molecules and the products that you're going into, we see this a little bit less, but this end of life management, right? What's the life cycle management as it relates to sustainability and that There's a lot of consumer pushback, or I feel like the limelight has been shining on sustainability very recently because consumers and individuals are recognizing some of the challenges of having products in the environment. Do they biodegrade? Do they not biodegrade, et cetera? But how are you guys approaching this whole life cycle and just end of life management as you think about products and how do your technologies fit into that? James, you want to jump in? Sure. I suppose we think of this from two perspectives. So the first is, I think it's really important that every material and actually almost every decision you make almost in life has carbon and an environmental impact. So we have to be really thoughtful when you start is what material am I going to use for a specific application? And is this the most appropriate and 
appropriate material with the lowest environmental footprint. So there's a lot of talk about transitioning away from plastics to alternative materials. But actually, I think what's really important is people need to stop and pause for a moment and say, well, actually, what's the environmental cost of that material before I even start? And then once you've determined what you think is the best material for the job, in a lot of applications, plastic is the best material because it has an incredibly low carbon footprint. You then have to think about the end of life. So you have to think, how will this material be recycled, collected, and then what will happen post that process? So where we're very focused is in polyethylene films. And the industry is really, really shifting from what was five years ago, even further back, very complex multi-material structures. So you might have a polyethylene laminated to a polypropylene or a polyester. Those materials can't or are very difficult or can't really be recycled. You can be incinerated, which isn't necessarily ideal, but they're very difficult to recycle. So the industry has really now shifted to all polyethylene structures and our technology fits in really, really well with laminates that are all polyethylene or products that are all polyethylene. And then that's where the recycling kind of the mass, the, the kind of the, the larger side of the recycling supply chain exists. So from our perspective, we fit very well into that. There is a lot of talk, I think, around biomaterials, and I think they have their place in the world. But I think people need to first be really mindful of what is the feedstock source. So if we're using large amounts of agricultural land to produce these bio-based materials, then what is the consequence on that on food poverty, for example? Where is this land being used to grow these materials? The second thing is, is going on to what I was saying earlier about the carbon environmental footprint of these materials. It's often much higher than maybe a, an alternative material that you can select. And then the final thing with the bio-based materials, which I'm not against at all. I think they absolutely have their place. But at the moment, there aren't necessarily many recycling streams for them. So a lot of them just head off to landfill. So while they say they're biodegradable, the truth is, is they typically need to be degraded under industrial compost conditions. And so unless they're collected in a formal recycling stream, then their proper purpose in life of being biodegradable isn't really realized. So that's not to say they're bad. We just need to be really thoughtful about the materials we select and how they're treated at their end of life. Yeah, makes sense. Neil, how does this whole life cycle management fit into your business and the products and the chemicals and technologies that you guys are developing? It's a part of the picture, I guess. I'll first say from a consumer point of view, and it's not really directly related to P2, but from a consumer point of view, it used to amaze me how the simple act of getting a cup of coffee every morning could generate such incredible amounts of waste. And after a year of buying coffee at Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts, you accumulate enough waste for a a modest-sized landfill, I think, with the cup and the lid and the stirrer and the thing, the little thing that the milk comes in and the packets if you use sugar, which I don't because sugar's bad, but people do. So there's a lot of waste. So I'd get that little message in there. So as a consumer, it's just incredible when you think about it. From P2's point of view, the first thing after performance that we always measure for our products is biodegradability, and it tends to be the first sustainability related question we get from users is we check the biodegradability. What is it? This is the kind of the realm really right now. And so we test that across the board and we keep a close eye on that. I will say with respect to our business today in cosmetics, we've received a pretty significant short-term boost because of an end-of-life issue, a biodegradability issue. And that relates to silicones, which are widely used in hair care and skin care. I have come under a lot of scrutiny with respect to their biodegradability. And because of their persistence in the environment, in fact, uh, certain types of cyclic silicones have been severely restricted, resulting in really an essential curtailment of use in the EU. And that has really focused a light on a part of our business and been a great boost to our business as people look for silicone alternatives. And at the root of that is the biodegradability question. So I think compared to the guys in polymers, the end of life question is not as big a deal for us, but it tends to be one of the, as I said, the first environmental things that we have to look at and definitely have to have biodegradability data. Yeah, certainly. And I think the products in the markets that you're selling into, they have a water, they potentially get into the waterways certainly when you're thinking about things going into personal care, they're touching people's skin. And so there's a lot of importance. I mean, it's important to have those issues understood. 
And for my coffee, I use this every day now. So it's a little brown on the inside, but it's supposed to wash up properly. And it's great. Just lasts forever. So I will jump in on that coffee topic. I had read a number of years ago that if you you went and got a cup of Starbucks, let's use them as every day, you were contributing one and a half pounds of waste to a landfill each week if you were just going Monday through Friday. And I didn't believe it. And I did actually, I did the math. I actually took home a cup and I weighed it and I was like, holy crap, you really do. And I also have been a longtime user of, I would bring my own mug to Starbucks. Now, of course, I just take my own mug to my own coffee machine and I don't have that same issue, but that's been an instinct. I don't think people realize it. You have to be mindful because when we had an office at WeWork and they decided to ban all plastics, so everybody was given a metal cup similar to yours. The problem was is within about four weeks, I think the majority of people had lost their metal cup and people then scrambling around to find metal cups and someone did the maths and you needed to use two and a half thousand plastic cups to make up for the environmental impact of having a metal one. So it's great if you can hold, and this is the better thing, is to reuse as much as possible but it has to be done in a way where people can kind of retain their item and and regularly use it. Otherwise, it starts to become meaningful and the consequence is bad for the environment. Yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of also like the straws. Everybody was getting reusable straws for a while and we've had plenty in our house and they get pretty gross and disgusting. Skip a straw, do something different, but expecting people to carry around their own straws and keep them clean, eh, maybe not. I think when it comes to the end of life, the most important thing we can do is give the consumer options. Sometimes I get frustrated when I see these debates within these sustainability circles of, you know, is this better or is that better? And I kind of come down in the same way when it comes to energy production as well. We need options. We need diversity in that space. We need to have reuse options. We need to have recycling options. And we need to have composting and biodegradability options. And I think for different materials, probably the best solution is different. It might be the best solution for paper to the recycling system works pretty well for paper. Recycling works, that system's pretty well established. It's easy to make paper products that are recycled. But then in EPS, for example, in our space, it's 98% air. The whole system for recycling that's set up for recycling paper doesn't work that well for EPS. And so we've said, well, if it's 98% air, does it make sense to drive trucks around and collect it and bring it back and densify it and reuse it? Or if it's 98% air, does it make sense to put an additive in there and have it anaerobically biodegrade in a landfill? Maybe that makes more sense in some applications. And then I think there are applications where it maybe it makes sense to replace plastic. I like to be careful. And now we like to, in the plastics industry, say, oh, plastic's got the lowest environmental footprint and everything. But maybe there are, I can't think of any you know, obvious ones off the top of my head, but there are, actually, I can think of one, is there was a customer who was making a water heater. And there it was a packaging system for a water heater. And it was originally all EPS, protective packaging around this water heater. And they went through the science. They wanted to have the most sustainable packaging solution. And they actually came up with, hey, it makes more sense for fiber on the top where it's not load bearing. And it worked out well. It was more recyclable. And the bottom, we really need the load bearing and we need something that can get wet. And, and fiber just won't work on the bottom. And they came up with a hybrid solution. But I thought that customer was a great example where they didn't just say, hey, we don't want plastic or we're going to all fiber. They did the sign and turned out the top half went to fiber and the bottom half packaging made the most sense was EPS. I think that's the type of thing we need to be doing to when we look at end-of-life options. Yeah, I think that's right. I think banning a product ends up can it have the negative effects, right? So, I mean, I think you have to choose the right product for the right application and recognize that plastic has great use in many applications, EPS, other products, surfactants, but it's picking the right product for the right circumstance. So here's a question that somebody actually has submitted. So sustainability can be really overwhelming because it can encompass so much. So what do you advise companies that are trying to be more sustainable and they just don't even know where to start? Where do you start on the sustainability journey? I think that is a great question because I've struggled with that myself. I think I have a little bit of advice to offer on that. And it's a little bit cliche. I hate to pull an answer off the shelf, but I think doing your materiality exercise is an important first step, right? And so if you're going to go through a certification process or a formal sustainability program like GRI or SASB or 
or something like that. It often starts with that materiality exercise of what is important to my company. And if you're in the chemical space, you probably come up with a different answer of what's important than if you're in the finance sector or if you're in the retail sector. And I think that's important. I think those of us in the chemical space probably should be working on different things in sustainability than people in the banking sector, for example. So that materiality exercise, because your question is right, there are so many things. Should we focus on diversity and inclusion or end of life or product design or H&S? Or, there are a lot of things, but go through that materiality exercise for your company and figure out which ones are the most important for your company. And if you're in the chemical space, which I got to think a lot of people in the, the room are, are, you kind of come down to often safety, emissions, material product design maybe are more important areas to focus on than, for example, maybe human capital, because a lot of our facilities are automated. We have a low number of employees per dollar of revenue, typically in the chemical industry. So maybe human capital isn't as important. We we don't have products that require a lot of labor and hands-on production, for example. But maybe if you're Nike, human capital is the most important thing for you to be working on in your sustainability space. So I just think that materiality exercise is the way to get to that. And I'll just put a plug in. I think SASB has some pre-populated materiality exercises on their website. Thanks. That's helpful. Any other thing that James or Neil, you would add to that? I think John gave a pretty full answer, actually. So there's not much more I'd add. Yeah, awesome. I agree. It's a full answer. I would just say one thing we've used is just common sense, right? One thing I like to do is when I arrive at the lab, especially I'm picking on the lab guys, is look in the waste paper bins and just look around the floors. There always seems to be so much stuff in there, like so much packaging around lab supplies and, and equipment. And I'm thinking we're supposed to be a green chemistry company. Come on. And so the waste then for a few weeks after that disappears, I think maybe they're hiding it around the back in plastic bags. But nonetheless, it gets us to think about the simple common sense stuff. And not anyone can do. You don't need any particular expertise. You just need a bit of a, honestly, a bit of a thrifty mind to look at things like that as a first step for anybody at all, anyone in the workforce. I think that's really true. I mean, the whole mindfulness thing. I think the other piece that I tie back to when we think about chemical companies and the chemical industry is inherently our process designs are in many ways designed to be sustainable, right? So there's a lot of reuse. There's a lot of recirculation. There's an efficiency built into chemical processes and chemical manufacturing to basically it's one, it's economical, right? Nobody wants to have waste streams of great products exiting their plant, whether it through flares or emissions, et cetera to it's the whole environmentally sound piece, right? So I think there's that whole level of clarity and mindfulness that goes into the design. And I think that's a piece that certainly when chemical companies, I think are starting, it's also look at what's already inherently there from your sustainability profile, from your environmental profile, and then go from there, as John says, look at the materiality beyond that. So we're going to start to get close to the close here. And I actually still have several questions, so they may have to just be follow-up questions. But I will jump in and back on this whole topic of innovation and collaboration. So it seems to me, and Neil, I'm going to target you with this one. When I look at what's going on, certainly in green surfactants and bio-based products, there seems to be that the innovation is coming with smaller independent companies and that our larger chemical companies are partnering for whether it be distribution agreements or maybe a manufacturing investment. Are you seeing the same thing? And what do you think is driving that? Yeah, I'm definitely seeing the same thing. There's been a whole flurry of those just in the last month, right? With Locust Performance Ingredients aligning with Dow as their channel to market, with Holly Firm partnering with Sassol, where Sassol is essentially buying the bulk of the output of their first plant. And then I think Pilot Chemical, my alma mater, partnered with Integrity Ingredients with a a similar sort of channel to market arrangement. So that's been sort of quite marked in the very recent past. And yeah, I think it's the sort of the classic story of the the small agile technology-based startup innovating something is truly valuable, but they lack scale. Perhaps it's scale, perhaps it's market reach. They lack something that the larger company 
has developed over the past many, many decades, right? I mean, Dow and Sassol and Pilot, right? Pilot's over 60 years old now. So all those three companies have spent multiple decades honing their channels to market and establishing customer relationships and so forth and logistics and all that customer service and all that stuff that actually does take a while to build up, not just money, but time again. And so combining that with the innovative nature of what guys like Holly Firm are doing makes sense on paper. And I'm rooting for those guys. I hope it makes sense in practice because I think the combination there is Great. I think there's also a factor here that the larger company like a Dow may not want to take the type of technology risk that the smaller companies are prepared to do with venture capital backing. I mean, it's a traditional venture capital model where those companies will take outsized risk in the expectation of outsized return and maybe typically outside of the sort of investment thesis for a Dow chemical or are a SaaS all. So again, it's something that the small guys can do that the appropriate time then makes sense for the big guys to partner up with. And uh, so, yeah, you mentioned surfactants and that's clearly something that's going on in surfactants. I'm sure it's going on in other areas. And maybe I just haven't been paying enough attention to those areas because I mean, the, the model itself, it's really product agnostic. So yeah, absolutely. That trend really speaks to where we're at and the need to innovate. If you look at some of the other industries where it's kind of innovate or die, biomedical or pharmaceutical, we wouldn't think that's abnormal at all. That's kind of the model of biomedical industry is these small startups innovate and the big pharma companies buy them. That's just how that industry has always kind of worked because they're in this innovate or die space. They need that constant flow of innovation. And the fact that you're kind of seeing that type of market behavior in the chemical industry now tells you we are needing a lot of innovation in the chemical industry. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you guys are obviously a spin out from a major consumer products company. How does that played out as you guys look at bringing your product to market? So you are getting closer to commercialization and really getting into the markets. Is working with Casey helping you? Is that making it harder to get into some other companies? How do you see that playing out? So it's great to have Casey as a major shareholder in our business. I mean, we also have Sabic Ventures as well, who are a great supporter. So again, further industry support, both from the, the polymer, polymer end of the supply chain, but also the consumer goods. We have a lot of demand for our products and technology because, as been already mentioned several times, a lot of the retailers, the consumer goods companies, but also the packaging industry as a whole have made very, very public plastic reduction and sustainability pledges and announcements. But also governments are getting starting to think around regulation and taxation on plastic. So in Europe, taxations are coming in on the use of virgin plastic. This is measured by weight. So there's some really strong market pulls for our technology, which is effectively reducing weight of plastic. And so in terms of our product launches, everything takes longer than a startup would like. So we like to think in weeks and well, days and weeks. And the industry often likes to think in quarters and years, which can be a frustration. But I think we're on course to launch by the end of this year, our first products in North America. So yeah, and it's a really exciting time for us. Awesome. Very good. That's really cool. Well, I'm going to give you guys one final question as, as we kind of work to wrap this up. And it'll be an open-ended. What else do you want people to know about your business, your innovation, your chemistry, your sustainability? I'm going to start with John. Oh, wow. That's a tough question. I sometimes say, uh, you know, polystyrene and, and styrene are the most misunderstood molecule in the market. So there's a lot, I guess, I'd want people to understand. I think the main thing for me would probably be for people to have a little bit of understanding what markets our products go into. Absolutely. We're the second largest EPS producer of in North America, and 67% of our products go into durable applications. People think of EPS as a food service application because that's where they see it. And by 2025, 80% of all of our volume will go into durable applications, insulation, bicycle helmets, geofoam. We're largely in the building construction industry, and that's part of our strategy is, hey, we got this material. It's efficient. We think what's the most sustainable and appropriate applications for us to use this material in. And we're think we're emphasizing insulating, both insulating perishable shipments, insulating 
medical supplies, insulating homes and insulating your head if it's a helmet on your head. So I guess that's probably the one thing I'd want people to understand about where we're going in industry is we're not a material that's used in foam coffee cups or materials used in insulation, medical shipments and, and safety helmets. Yeah, that's good. That's a great point. James, how about you? I think, first of all, from a technology perspective, we're able to really help companies achieve their plastic reduction targets. So really driving for sustainability. So if companies want to be able to use less plastic, then we have a really, really credible solution that doesn't make a small change. It makes a really big impact, 30, 40% material reduction, which is significant. And the second part to our business is R&D capabilities, because I think you have to combine both technology and R&D capability. So we're able to have our customers come in, run trials on our capability. And this is what we're seeing. It's accelerating their R&D programs, their innovation programs. And that's really, really valuable. I think some of that goes back to being a startup. We're able to move quickly. We're able to be creative and problem solve. So this combination, I think, of really exciting technology that can make a meaningful difference in the world, combined with R&D capability, is what we're offering out to the market. So it's not just a technology, it's a whole package that we're able to offer. Awesome. That's helpful. Thank you. And Neil? So I guess there's two things. One is we're making ingredients that you put on your skin and on your hair every single day. So if you care about what you put on your skin and your hair, you really should take a look at sustainable ingredients your consumers are increasingly aware of what they put on themselves. And so that's what we care about. That's what we develop. That's where we innovate. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is if you're in or around New York City on May the 3rd and the 4th, you should visit the Society of Cosmetic Chemists New York Suppliers Day. It's at the Javits Center. It's the largest gathering of cosmetic chemists in North America. It'll be the first big event after the pandemic. They had a small one last year and we'll be exhibiting there. So anyone that's interested in this space should come along. You'll get a snapshot of the whole industry and you'll also get a chance to try some finished products made with our ingredients, including lipstick and mascara, foundation, deodorants, and what else we got? A hair detangler. So Check it out. Javits Center, May the 3rd and 4th, New York City. Awesome, awesome. And that is going to be a great conference. So that'll be awesome. Well, thank you guys. I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. And thank you for everybody that's joined us live. And those that are listening to it recorded, well, thanks for joining The Chemical Show. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Victoria. Thanks so much. Thank you, Victoria. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.